Well, you can open up to Ephesians 5 this morning. That's where we're going to be. I have no doubt that every person in this room this past week was a consumer at some point. What do I mean by that? Well, you spent time, I'm sure, evaluating the purchasing options in front of you and deciding in whatever sphere it was, which item to buy using your resources. And you made that decision on which item would serve your needs the most and be the best purchasing option for the resources that you have. I did that this week. I made a special trip to Sam's Club to buy a two and a half pound bag of coffee beans. Two and a half pounds, that's right. And it's a very good price at Sam's Club. And I did that because the best of my ability to the best I can find, that's the most bang for my buck when it comes to coffee. So it lasts me quite a while. It's two and a half pounds and it is very inexpensive. Now there's nothing wrong with being a consumer at all. It's actually a, a wonderful thing that we have in our culture, the freedom to maximize our resources and get the best return for the resources that we have worked for, that we've been given. It's a great thing that we benefit from every single day and every single week. But here's the danger of living in a consumer-driven economy. What happens is, as you live in a world dominated by consumerism, and as you make decisions every day and every week based on investing your resources and evaluating how much return you're going to get for those resources and for that investment, what tends to happen is that we start to think of our relationships with other people in terms of a consumer relationship. And so things start to move from economic investment and return to relational investment and return. And so we start to evaluate things like friendships that way. If I'm going to invest time into this friendship, you can even see the, the language of consumerism there, what return am I going to get out of this? Is it worth it to me? People think about churches that way. Am I going to invest my time and my resources in this church? And if so, what return am I going to get out of it? And if they don't provide a particular service to me that I'm looking for, well, then I will take my resources elsewhere and invest them somewhere else. Now, this can influence all sorts of relationships, but there may be no area where this sort of consumer mindset is more damaging than to marriage in our culture. People enter into marriage now thinking of it as a consumer relationship. And the moment that this relationship stops giving me a proper return on my investment, or the moment I stop getting what I need or want out of this relationship, then maybe I'll go elsewhere. And maybe I'll stop investing in this relationship. It's not worth it anymore. Now, I know most of us in here, probably all of us, would never verbally say that about marriage or about our relationships with our spouse, but this can become 
a, a subtle driver in the way we deal with one another. And we can start to think of our relationship with our spouse as a consumer relationship, and we can start to exhibit these sort of patterns in daily life. It's damaging to that most important of relationships, the marriage relationship. And so rather than getting our perspective of marriage sort of shaped into this cultural mold of consumer relationships, we have to, as believers, fight, and it is a fight, we have to fight to think of marriage and understand marriage as not a consumer relationship, but as a covenant relationship. Not consumer, but covenant. What does that mean? A covenant relationship. Well, a covenant relationship is a binding commitment to another person. Tim Keller has a, and his wife Kathy have a wonderful book on marriage. I recommended it to you in the email this week. But they say that in a consumer relationship, the needs of the individual are primary. And so each person is always thinking about their own needs or their own wants. Whereas in a covenant relationship where there's a binding commitment there, the needs of the relationship take priority. And the needs of the individual will at times take a back seat because this is what that person needs. And this is what our relationship needs right now. Now you, if you're a believer, are very familiar with covenant relationships because the Bible is filled with covenant relationships between God and his people, human beings. God commits to his people. That's what he does. He commits to his people. He makes covenants with his people and he moves heaven and earth to make sure that he is faithful to that covenant. He goes to such an extent that he sends his only begotten son to die to ensure that he has a faithful relationship with his people in order to redeem his creatures that he loves, human beings. And when you think about covenant relationships, we spent last week talking about how marriage is modeled after God's love for us demonstrated in Christ. Marriage is modeled after the ultimate covenant relationship, and it's modeled after the great lengths to which God goes to ensure that he's faithful to that covenant relationship. And so that makes your marriage, my marriage, fundamentally a covenant relationship, and you have to understand it that way. It's vital to grasp the true nature of marriage for the health and well-being of your relationship. So Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be again this morning, and this is a very familiar passage to you, I'm sure, if you're a Christian, Ephesians 5, to 33. We started into it last week, but keep in mind that the core of Paul's argument in this passage the core of his presentation of marriage is that it is a covenant relationship, and it's modeled after the ultimate covenant relationship between Jesus Christ and his people. It's modeled after the union between Christ and his bride, the church. And so we started looking last week in verse 22 and unfolding the ways in which human marriages reflect and imitate Christ's relationship with his church, and we called these guidelines. And there are three guidelines, and we got to two of them last week. 
And so we started here in verses 22 to 24, three guidelines for walking in wisdom. And this is all part of this larger passage from Paul, chapter 5, verse 15 to chapter 6, verse 9, where he's teaching us how to walk in wisdom. And here he's talking specifically about marriage. And so here are three guidelines. First of all, wives, follow your husband's loving leadership by imitating the church's example. Now, I understand that last week I was very thin on specifics of what this looked like. Bethany actually teased me about that when we got home from church. I said, you didn't say a lot to wives. <laughs> and I said, well, that was actually kind of intentional because the Bible is actually pretty thin on specifics in this case. It gives us very broad principles and it tells wives to submit to their husbands and follow their leaderships, but it doesn't give us a lot of specifics on what that looks like. And so we have to work it out in daily life. Now, what our temptation often is, is when we have a broad principle, we sort of think, well, I can do whatever I want to do. <laughs> I can apply this in any way I want to. And that's not being faithful to what is commanded here. And so we actually have to work even harder in God's grace, to apply this command specifically to our relationships. But let me sort of get more specific and try to offer a bit more, more help here to wives from verses 22 to 24. In Genesis 2, we talked about Genesis some last week, but in Genesis 2, when Adam looked around before God created Eve, it says that he did not see a helper fit for him. He didn't have who he needed. He didn't have a helper fit for him. And that word helper describes Eve in her marriage relationship with Adam. And that word helper there actually means a strong helper. It's a very forceful and a very strong word to describe Eve. And what it means is that she was to be a complement to supply what he was lacking. She was to fit with him and give him what he needed to be successful and to make the relationship between the two of them successful and to have their mission that God had given them to cover the earth, to take dominion over the earth, be successful. And so wives, you offer the gift of submission to your husband's leadership in order to benefit him and make him successful. Now, of course, we talked last week and we'll continue to talk to husbands. Husbands have the primary responsibility in this to initiate loving leadership and to set the tone in the home and to follow Christ's example in that. And that's the second guideline here. So wives follow. They're that strong helper, that complement, giving what is lacking in the husband and his leadership in the relationship. And then husbands initiate and lead by loving their wives and imitating Christ's loving sacrifice. So look at verses 25 to 27. We saw this last week, but let me remind you of it. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So as you think about Christ's relationship with the church, it is one of loving, sacrificial, intentional leadership. He's purposeful. 
He's intentional. He knows what is best for his bride, and he leads to accomplish that on her behalf. And so if you think about Christ's intentional sacrificial leadership, this is husbands, if you think about this and you see this, and this is the perfect model that we're supposed to follow, and if you think about this as walking along a road, there's a ditch on either side of the road that every husband will fall into at one point or another. And some of us are prone to continually fall in one ditch or the other. What are those ditches? Well, there are two ways that husbands often fall short of Christ's example of loving leadership. On one side, you have the dominant controlling husband who thinks that everyone in the house exists for him and for his control and for his benefit. And then on the other side, in the other ditch, you have the passive husband who fails to initiate and fails to take leadership and fails to be concerned for what is best for his wife and fails to sacrifice for her. He abdicates his responsibility to lovingly lead and initiate with his wife. He never even thinks about it. He's sort of passive and absent, even though he's physically there. Now, from my observation in my own life, and then in others as well, I would say that most guys today fall off on the passive side of things. Guys, we tend to abdicate our responsibility. We just sort of flow along in life and don't think intentionally about our wives and how we can lovingly initiate and lead with them. And because of that reality, I think we need to be shaped by this third guideline in significant ways. This is what we'll look at today, verses 28 to 33. Husbands, love your wives by imitating Christ's loving union. And so as you get into this, you can see that Paul follows the same pattern in these verses that he did in verses 22 to 24. So in verses 22 to 24, or specifically in 22 and 23, he starts with a command, and then he gives them the, the model or the foundation for that command. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why? And then verse 23, he tells us, what's the foundation for that? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Command, explanation, theological basis for obedience to that command. He does the same thing in verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And now he gives the explanation. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Command, theological explanation for why we obey that command. So he begins in verse 28 with very clear instructions to the husband. And they're similar, right? He tells them to love their wives, but in a slightly, with a slightly different point of emphasis. It was sacrificial leadership before, and now it's loving union with your wife. Look at verse 28. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, what is Paul getting at here? with this commandment to husbands and his emphasis on loving their wives as their own bodies. Well, 
What he's not saying here is some cheesy cliche like happy wife, happy life, right? It's not what he's going after. That often to me sounds like, well, if you will just be nice to your wife, she will stop pestering you. It's incredibly patronizing, I think, to have that attitude. Awful thing to say, but that's not what he's getting at here at all. It's not what he's going after. He's also not telling husbands here that the the most important thing they can do is to love themselves. It's amazing how frequently I hear people say things like, before you can love someone else, you have to love yourself. The Bible nowhere tells us to love ourselves. In fact, it argues against self-love as a huge problem in our lives. But what the Bible does do, and what Paul is doing here, is he is assuming a certain level of care and concern that is natural for every person, that we have, all of us, for our own bodies. I mean, we take care of ourselves. We eat. We don't want to be uncomfortable. You naturally, without thinking about it, take care of yourself and want what is best for your own body. And Paul's point here is that love and care and concern for your wife should be natural to you. It should make sense for you to act in this way. Why? Because she is your own body. You are one flesh. You have been joined together. Look at what follows in verse 29. For... No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Here is the theological backdrop. This is the foundation, the motivation, the basis, and the model for our love of our wives, the natural loving union that should be there between husbands and wives. Husbands love their wives not to manipulate, not to control, not to get what they want, but they love and cherish their wives because of the example set by Christ and the church and because of the reality of the one flesh union, which is modeled for us in Christ and the church. I mean, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians for a while, so maybe you haven't been with us, but... But think about the example in the book of Ephesians that is set for us of Christ's union with his bride, the union between Christ and his church. Verse 30 says it pretty clearly, because we are members of his body. I mean, we have read over and over again in the book of Ephesians, we are in him. We are united to Christ All the benefits that you and I have as believers come to us only because we are members of his body, because we are united to him. I mean, if you want to flip back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, you can see this very clearly in a passage we looked at last week, describing Christ's authority and his leadership, and then talking about our union with him. Verse 22 And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Remember, that means for the benefit of the church. Christ exercises his sovereign authority over every aspect of the universe for the benefit of his church. 
verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We have been so united to Christ, so joined with him that we are considered his body, a close personal relationship with him. So Paul states that here, the church is Christ's body, and then he does something very interesting. He's looking for scriptural justification for this truth, right? He wants to ground what he's telling us in the Bible. And he does that by going to a most interesting place. And he quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 31. And he does this to prove to us that Christ and the church are one body. Look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, if you're reading through this and you see this, you might think, oh, that's a quote from Genesis 2. And it is. That would be the right thing to notice. But then if you were to go back to Genesis 2, you would read that passage there and you would go, this is not talking about Jesus and the church. In fact, this is describing to us the first marriage. This is describing the relationship between Adam and Eve. This is the first human marriage. But here's what Paul is doing here that is so profound. He's using this passage to help us understand that even the first human marriage wasn't given to primarily be about human marriage. It had a greater focus and a greater model. And it wasn't important just because it was a marriage. It was important because of what it pointed to. The real foundation on which human marriage is built is Christ and his love for his people. And Paul makes this clear to us. Look at verse 32. He's explaining it to us. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, you have to be clear here. What's the mystery that he's talking about? Well, he's not just talking about human marriage. He's not just saying human marriage is a mystery. It's hard to understand the interaction between husband and wife. That's not what he's saying here. If you were to go back and read the book of Ephesians, the word mystery is used to describe God's plans for the entire universe that are realized in his union with the church. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Not revealed before, now revealed through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the mysterious aspect of this. And so, in Ephesians 5.32, he's defining the mystery as the relationship between Christ and the church as his body, And he's showing us how that relationship is reflected in human marriage. And he's showing us that that relationship, that revelation of Christ bringing the Gentiles in and the the one body that he creates is reflected in every single human marriage. Maybe this will help you understand this. 
I've had the opportunity as a pastor over the years, as an assistant pastor, and now here at Woodhaven, of speaking at a number of weddings. And it is one of the, my favorite parts of pastoral ministry. I love it. I know that oftentimes guys are not supposed to like weddings, but man, I just totally enjoy going to weddings and being a part of, of a wedding. My favorite part is standing at the front and watching the groom see his bride come down the aisle. It's always magnificent. But oftentimes during those ceremonies, and if you've, if you've heard me do a wedding before, you've probably heard me say this, but oftentimes I will tell the crowd that is gathered to witness this wedding that ultimately this marriage and this wedding is a picture frame. It's just a picture frame. And it's a picture frame that is meant to direct your attention to the artwork that is in the middle. It's a picture frame that is meant to point you to the true artwork, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his love and his covenantal relationship with his church. That's the main attraction. And this marriage is awesome and it's glorious and it's a wonderful thing, just like it was with Adam and Eve in the garden. But even that marriage was ultimately meant to point to something more beautiful and more foundational and more substantial. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, look, from the very beginning of time, from the very first human marriage, the original wedding ceremony wasn't about them. Paul didn't look at human marriage and think, oh, that's a neat analogy of Christ and the church. God created human marriage to show us what Christ's covenantal love for his church is like. It's meant to point us to the mysterious union between Christ and his bride. And so by quoting this here, in verse 31, Paul is teaching us about the real purpose of marriage. And he's teaching us about the true nature of marriage. The true nature of marriage is that just like Christ and his bride, it is a covenantal relationship, not a consumer relationship. Look at the language of verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We are joined together, husband and wife, they are to, the husband is to hold fast all the language of union. They are one flesh, covenantally united together. That's the heartbeat of what marriage is. When Bethany and I got married in 2004, we did premarital counseling with our pastor in South Carolina. And I don't remember a lot from those, those meetings. Um, we... I was asking Bethany about this this morning, and she said, well, I actually remember it more than what you remember from those meetings, um, <laughs> which was funny. Uh, but we would go into our pastor's office and sit and listen to him talk about, about marriage and what it was going to be like and the biblical basis for it. And it was very, very helpful in a lot of ways, shaping to us. But the one thing that sticks out in my mind is the way he described this holding fast and this being joined together in Genesis chapter 2. He said that you need to think of this like two pieces of wood that have been glued together using the strongest adhesive you can imagine. You're still distinct people, but you're really one person now. And he explained this to us and said, with a warning, this is why 
It's so damaging for those two people in that union to be torn apart. Because you can't break apart two pieces of wood cleanly that have been glued together. They'll splinter and they'll cause damage. And that's why divorce is so tragic and so difficult for people to go through. And that's why it's so important for us to understand the true nature of marriage. That's exactly right. It is a union where you have been brought together in the closest possible relationship between two human beings. And what's glorious about this here is that ultimately Paul wants us to think about this in terms of Christ and his church. We have been, as his church, glued to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been joined to him in such a way that we are now considered, as the church, his body. He sacrifices for us. He exercises his authority for our benefit and for our good. And because of our union with him in a covenantal relationship, he will never let us go. He will never break that bond. We are with him for all of eternity And that relationship is sure because it rests on his covenantal faithfulness and commitment, not ours. And that is the model for husbands to love their wives. That's the height to which we need to aspire, guys. And as we reflect on that relationship between Christ and his church, it should cause profound practical implications for us because that's exactly where Paul goes next. Look at verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I mean, he's been talking about this deep theology of the covenantal love between Jesus and his church and the commitment and the mystery of it, but it is not abstract and it's not impractical. In reality, when you and I meditate on these things and understand the love between Christ and his church, it has deep implications for us, practical, daily, functional implications in our lives. Look at the language in verse 33. However, let each one of you. I mean, those are individual commands. And so this letter would have been read out loud to the church at Ephesus. And what Paul is doing here is he's targeting each and every husband and each and every wife sitting in that congregation. And so they're hearing him unfold this profound mystery of God's plans and the relationship between Christ and the church. And then he says, let each one of you, each husband here needs to make intentional effort to model this in your own life. Each person has a responsibility to work this out in your daily life, to hear these commands, to see what they're modeled after, and to pursue them in your own relationship. So what do husbands do? Man, recognize the covenant union you have with your one flesh wife and love her as you love your own body. Let your love be natural, but cherish her care for her, want what is best for her, do what is best for her, cultivate her, make her successful, be intentional and strong and kind and gentle. Wives, recognize the way 
Your relationship with your husband models the relationship between Christ and the church. And so have a respect and a reverence for his responsibility to lead sacrificially. The weight that is on him to model Christ's sacrificial love for the church, recognize that and give him the gift of following his leadership and making him successful in his task. Be that strong helper that complements where he is weak. And when we work this out in our daily lives, you and I, in our marriage relationships, will proclaim to a world that is filled with consumer relationships. The world's idea of marriage is broken and fractured and disrupted, and it seems to be so far gone. But as you and I understand this and implement it in our lives, we will be a testimony and we will be that picture frame that draws attention to the loving sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for his bride. And that is what we're supposed to be. That's really what our marriages are all about. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need your grace. This is a high challenge for us. In our own strength, in our own ability, we could never accomplish this. I could never do this as a husband. Wives could never follow and respect and encourage their husbands as a strong helper. Husbands could never love their wives sacrificially as you have loved the church. But Lord, we are enabled by your Holy Spirit to walk in wisdom in this area. Draw our attention to our model Help us to be imitators of you by your grace. Strengthen us for the task at hand. Fill us with more of who you are. And we thank you in advance for the work that you're going to do because you will not let us go. You will bring us to perseverance. You will bring us to the end. You will sanctify us because we are your bride. And so sanctify us in this area just like all the others, Lord. Thank you for your love in Christ's name. Amen.